Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Barbican Screen Talks Archive podcast. Every episode, we dig into the Barbican Archive to find the best and most illuminating recordings from nearly 40 years of filmmaker Q&As. This time we have an absolute must-listen for anyone with an interest in documentary filmmaking. It's director Roberto Minervini talking to the Doc Society's head of film, Shanida Scotland, about his striking 2018 feature, What You Gonna Do When the World's on Fire. Though born and raised in Italy, Minervini has been living in the American South with his wife and children for several years. It's in this adoptive home that he filmed his third documentary film, telling four parallel stories of African-Americans living in the neighbouring states of Louisiana and Mississippi. They are young brothers, Ronaldo and Titus, whose childhood of carefree play has already been encroached upon by the concerns of the adult world. There's also Chief Kevin and the Flaming Arrows tribe who keep old traditions alive as they create costumes for Mardi Gras. And we meet the new Black Panther Party, led by Crystal Mohammed, protesting police brutality and racist hate crime. As Minervini explains, all of these connections came about through his friendship with one remarkable woman, Judy, the owner of the Oo Bar in New Orleans. That bar was the director's hangout spot as the idea for the film took shape. Minervini talks about why he was drawn to these particular people as subjects and collaborators, and how they, in turn, influenced his pivotal decision to shoot on film and in black and white. He also describes his convivial, family-friendly shooting style, which would come as no surprise to anyone who has seen and appreciated the intimacy in this documentary. It led to lasting friendships, not only between the crew and the people in the film, but also among their children. Minervini hasn't necessarily kept in touch with the right-wing militia that he mentions at one point in this discussion, however. That sit-down was actually for his previous documentary, The Other Side. Documentary makers talk a lot about the need to build trust, and as you'll hear, that really is the beginning and the end of Minervini's process. He's very clear that in the context of a documentary about black Americans made by a white European, trust could only arise if he was absolutely upfront about his own prejudices going in. And at the centre of all this is that evocative title. Minervini explains its origins as well as teasing out the different layers of the question. Who is asking it? And just as important, who is answering? 
I'm Eleni Jones and this is Barbican Screen Talks with Roberto Minervini. Thank you for it's such an incredible, striking film with so many stark and harsh realities going on and you found an incredible group of contributors to your film and I I wanted to ask really just how you found them and how you got started with the film. So there's a couple starting points, one being 2016, the year where there were a series of murders by the hand of the police, of young black men by the hand of the police that went unpunished. Some of them made the international news back to back July 5th and 6th, you know, murders of uh, Alton Sterling and Flando Castile, the guy with the little girl in the back of the car. Um, but then nine days after the death of Flando Castile, a young African-American killed three policemen in Dallas and said that it was time to, to take action and uh, retaliate. And that was something unprecedented for our generations. And during the electoral campaign, of, you know, presidential campaign of Donald Trump, talking about how the danger of downtowns, you know, mainly black downtowns like Chicago. Uh, living in the South, I remember vividly the emergence of the fear of black people again, one more time. So that was one of the starting points that m- motivated me to go to the neighboring state of, of Louisiana first and then Mississippi and looking for people to start this experience of being together and talking and meeting at a, you know, at a halfway, being, me being white of European descent and then being black of African descent. So that's how it started. But the first person I met was Judy. I met her at her bar because I was looking for musicians since music, especially black and folk music from the South, jazz right after, always carried the oral history of Africans in America and then African-Americans. And so uh, Judy was the daughter, is the daughter of Jesse Hill, this prominent musician. So uh, I ended up hanging out at the bar at the Hoopapadu on Wednesdays when she performed. And we hung out really literally for about a year before we decided that perhaps we could, you know, there was a film there to be made. So that was the starting point. The kids, the brother's uncle, lived on the top floor of the bar where the bar was. And Judy is a queen of the Mardi Gras tradition, so I met all the Indians, especially the Flaming Arrows tribe with Chief Kevin. So that was the starting point. It was a political and also anthropological sounds too big. It's just me really hanging out and being open and honest with people and, yeah. But there's something in that hanging out, as you call it, because it's clear you developed an incredible amount of trust with your contributors. That takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of work for them to meet you and you to meet them too. So how did you go about that? Was it just a matter of, you know, as you say, hanging out in the bar, but also with the young boys and their mother? And tell me all about that. So first, there is a little bit of personal background here that I feel is relevant, but maybe not. Through, you know, life experience, I've got to believe that in order to establish some sort of intimacy, the prerequisite is openness and honesty. I mean, it sounds cliche, but it wasn't cliche to me. I don't think I lived a life in honesty all the time. I've been a liar myself and I've been a manipulator myself. And at some point uh, I had to start a catharsis and become on the way to becoming a better man and better father. So that is important to me. It's very important. 
and I am very strict in that. That I'll go by my life. So when I went to Louisiana, Mississippi, one of the first things I did was to talk about my prejudices, not, you know, my being liberal and, and open and, and being, a, I don't know, some sort of champion or equality. It's the other way around. I had to start from a place of vulnerability. So I talked to Judy first than to everybody else what it meant for me to be there. It meant that I was still possessed, not necessarily a victim, but, you know, the prejudices or the stereotypes of going to a gas at night in a black neighborhood and seeing a couple of younger men profiling them, perhaps subconsciously, but, you know, if there's something bulky in the pocket, being scared and fighting within myself to say this is not it's supposed to be. Having said that, my emotional response is there, and the emotional response comes from something else. So here's where I'm at. I'm willing to open up. I'm willing to do my work, but this is where I'm at today. I'm not immune to racism. I am white European. I feed off mainstream media information, and at the same time, I have some power. I can put a spotlight wherever I want. So despite my own flaws and I have got a lot of work to do, this could be a starting point. And that was the starting point for building trust because some of them at least could trust that from this point of openness and perhaps we could build something, you know, which we call intimacy. How long did you shoot with the contributors? So I always shoot during the summer. The whole summer, being a father with kids in elementary school, I need to use the summer because they come with me, the family relocates with me and and my kids are all involved, not in the production of the film, but in life. Like, you know, Ronaldo and Titus were having sleepovers with my kids and so on and so forth. But then I shoot before this. So summer, it kind of gets where, the, you know, I conclude the shoot, you know, I complete the shoot. So that was the summer 2017. I started shooting chunks of time in September 2016. So I'd say maybe five months of shooting, but I started hanging out with them 2016. So yeah, about five months. Well, you mentioned you're a white European man. I understand now that you do live in the South, in the American South. And I, I guess I know that your other films also are set in and based around communities in the American South. Why? What's the fascination? Is it because you've been there? How long have you been there? The American South has a long sort of fictional Gothic history as well. Um, but you're doing something obviously quite different, and this is a documentary film. So tell me how that all kind of works for you. So I lived in the US, been living there for two decades and 13 years in Texas, in Houston, Texas. My wife grew up in Houston, but I was living in New York for the first seven years, and I was deeply dissatisfied with the, you know, with the way the intellectual leftist elite kind of operates, the modus operandi and, and the philosophy. And that's where I, the, all, the, all this is thinking about the concept, you know, inclusion, exclusions, which has a lot of, you know, and the class issue, the race issue, all of that started. That process of awareness started in New York City, a city that is self-proclaimed you know, liberal city, which is in fact, statistics say the third most segregated city in America, where everybody, including myself, thought that we're very content with the minority representation and inclusion and considered that a point of arrival, not a point of departure to reach equality. I mean, it's an afterthought in a liberal America. 
And I remember talking to people and exploring, you know, talking about minority representation. I, I married into a, you know, my kids a mixed race. So uh, it's a hot topic in, in my family as well. And, and I remember asking ourselves that we would never put our kids in an all-white classroom. But will we put our kids in an all-black classroom? And I have yet to find someone who will be willing to do that. In your city, I remember there was a hot topic. And long story short, I decided to get out of there and relocate to the South. Uh, why the documenting people in the fringe, you know, fringe of society? Several reasons. One is my background is blue-collar. So I come from a small town in Italy where there's no, you know, none of my family, my, me and my brother was here. We finally got, you know, college education, but none of our parents who have any education. And that was not our path. When you're outside of the spotlight, there is some sort of a very primordial sense of resilience and courage. And that grows into people who are actually out the spotlight. And that I find very, very, I feel comfortable with that sense of, the resilience that comes from people who have very little and lived at the fringe of society and the honesty and transparency. So that's how, that's really how, why I'm drawn to them because I can have open and honest conversations with right wing militia people and uh, sit down at the same table. And I don't find that in the upper echelons of society. I don't find that openness. So that is the main the reason why I'm drawn to, to these communities in the South. I'd say, yeah. And then, obviously, in the film, it's shot in black and white, and you shoot these long takes that slowly build, but also indicate flexibility in your shooting style as well. And the fact that it's, as I said, it's in black and white, they're quite deliberate choices. And I, I wanted you to sort of invite us into that decision-making a little bit, please, and, and talk us through yeah. it. Yeah, so that's something, the black and white, using black and white is something that I had decided even before knowing what kind of film I was going to make. I was talking to Judy first about it. And we shot some you know, tests here and there, the Indians one time. We, and we were talking about what it meant to shoot this film in black and white. We all agreed on something, on the historical aspect of it, of tying this film directly with or creating a continuum with all the iconography of the civil rights movements, which all this iconography is black and white. So we all agreed on our attempt to kind of iconize them. And we were all on board with that. Then as a filmmaker, there's another aspect. There is the fact that color created some sort of hierarchy of beauty and ugliness among them and among their spaces and dresses. Just the example could be the Panthers with a black uniform and empty spaces or highway underpasses and the Indians with beautiful, there's nothing black and white about their dresses. And uh, I didn't want the hierarchy of beauty because there's an effect on how we engage with them. The pandas would have ended up, and they're already struggling to be heard, and I would have put them at the bottom of this ladder of beauty. And uh, so I didn't want that. I think black and white grants them some sort of equanimity, and we can navigate through stories without without engaging in a concept of beauty that, by the way, beauty of color is also white European as a concept. So there's all of that. There's my own thinking as a filmmaker, but definitely we all agreed on the fact that we needed to tie this film into a particular historical moment that was really important, to, especially to all of them. 
And absolutely what you say, isn't it, that in shooting in black and white, we sort of elevate, the voices are elevated, what they're saying is elevated. And actually, there's no music other than music that is sort of naturally created in film as well. So obviously all of those choices. And your DOP, he was involved in the conversation with Judy as well? And Yeah, so... I've worked with the same people. I've always worked with the same people. The shooting crew is, you know, with four of us, me, Diego, DOP. We both share camera operator duties because we don't cut our long takes. So we pass the camera onto each other's shoulders so we can't hold it for 15 minutes or 20 minutes. Then there is two more people with us. And then uh, in the back office, there's four more. So total 10, but four is that kind of core. And the reason why... I like it that way, meaning I could never be a one-man show, a documentarian by myself. It's just because each of them have their own relationship with them, with the characters, with people involved in the film, you know, with their own attachments and emotional implications and friendships and loves and all that. So, of course, they are involved in both the creative process and you know, they give input to me, And but it, it goes beyond that. That is a sub products of the fact that they all, including Diego, have their own relationship with the people. For example, my wife and Judy have a friendship that is their own, that continues now. And yeah, me and Ronaldo, the older boy, we're very close. We're very close. And I'm also close to Miss Ashley's mother, just because obviously she's involved with this special friendship and bond that we have and so other people have their own you know Alexis my another one is a strong friendship with Chief Kevin and they see each other the foundation of the way I shoot is very convivial it's family oriented we relocate there you know there's partners and kids everybody participates and that has an effect on how we coexist and that has an effect on the input we bring what we bring to the table when we shoot but then, obviously, it's this community of filmmaking, community-style filmmaking, in a sense, with your contributors. But you also have to edit. And you have, you're dealing with harsh realities, especially for the boys. You're often felt that you're watching them sort of evaluate their own horizons and what their possibilities could be. And Judy has so much going on. And the new Black Panther Party as well. And you have to make choices as to what is in your film, what is your film. So I wondered how you came down to those four threads and did you lose any characters? And I think you said you shot over a summer, so that's obviously quite a lot of footage. So what was that like? Was that quite singular for you? Yeah, there's a lot to say about that. So I'll try to be, being succinct is not one of my strengths, but I'll try. So yeah, because of the open nature of the way I shoot, there is something almost auto, like the genesis of the project is almost, you know, it's almost the auto genetic. Like in a way, I'm filming with people I'm hanging out with and I, I film stories. And yes, I have an idea from the beginning that this was going to be an ensemble of stories, perhaps never converging. I did have a feel about that, but then I started filming tens of stories. And uh, some of them fizzled just because the intimacy wasn't there anymore, you know, from my side or their side, or maybe we just didn't want to be in it for the long run because these relationships are long lasting. And that is something also in the beginning, we know that we're going to do something that transcends cinema here and that we're going to engage very deeply. So some of them, some of the stories just didn't go through and I wasn't trusted, you know, I didn't, I didn't gain my trust, I didn't deserve trust and vice versa. And so in the end, 
since I don't review footage, because if I review, start reviewing footage, then I, I start having a preconceived idea of what the film could be, inevitably. So I don't review footage ever until after later on in the editing process. So I talk about it. I keep kind of the memory of what we're doing, living in the moment, keep it alive. And I talk to Judy and these people and I say that I'm seeing stories in an, almost algorithmically. Mm -hmm. Wow, it seems we're going to point B from point A. And there is a you know, possibility of going to B1, B2, B3, you know, and, and, and then we all contribute. So we already have all a sense of how this film could take shape. Then we have 150 hours of footage, and I send them to Belgium right. to an editor who does barely speaks English and has to review this film, which is the magic. So for me, it works very well because she has to rely heavily on emotions. And this is how we film as well because I'm really the only one of the crew members who speaks English, I mean, who understands English fairly well. I would say almost everything when I shoot. But the others sometimes they have to gauge faces, emotions, and go with their own, mm -hmm. yeah, how they feel, their sense of attachment. And so, and that's how we start editing, Marie-Hélène by herself, trusting her own feelings. And, mm -hmm. and, and then, so when we get together, all those prejudices come back into the discussion of what you feel, but is this something that has to do with you being European against back and forth? So it's a complicated process that where, you know, they were all those ingredients, right? Our cultural background, um, uh, political beliefs, ideology, language barrier, all of that plays uh, a role in finally making a selection and uh, it's very very draining as a process rewarding but draining i mean you always end up crying and laughing it's like the movies we laugh we cry we hate each other we separate we break up then we get together again i mean maria len and i have a special bond because it's extremely melodramatic <laughs> the editing process is so melodramatic mm -hmm. because it's so intense and you talk about this editing process where it's very emotional. You're relying on emotion mostly. You're dealing with people who've given you so much of themselves and you're trying to be really vulnerable with them. And it makes me think about actually that's maybe a really simple thing, but the title, the title is a really striking title. And there's a question here about sort of who's asking the question, who's it being directed at? And I wondered if you could just talk through how you came to this is a, it's a big question for me, the title. There's a gospel that carries the title, performed by Le Belly and Anne Graham, uh, this very obscure singer. But, you know, the answer, you know, what are you going to do with, the, you know, which words on fire, the, the answer is always the same, I'm going to run to my Lord. And running to Lord, that two meanings, right? And the Lord as in God. And the other one being the slave owner. And that also is a question to me, right? Who am I? I mean, if there's fire, they run into me. Are they running to me? Am I? Do I represent power, salvation in a way? So it's a, it's a big question. It's a big question, I think. So it's directed, I think, look, Judy answered the question for herself. And she had a very clear question. Like, well, if you're white, you run away and wait for um, rescue. You'll be rescued. If you're black, either you burn in flames or you rescue yourselves. I mean, that's how it is. So it was kind of matter of fact answer based on experience, right? It's experiential, historical. And me, so that's why the question perhaps directed to me as a white European guy, I don't know. It's totally true that I'm, I'm always, I always feel safe. I never feel unsafe. 
you know, in, in life. Everything comes fairly easy being born white European. And also the fact of that, the burden of, I need awareness over the fact that I pervertedly represent safety. I'm the danger to some, you know, classes and races, but I'm also safety, like a slave owner, which is absolutely, it sent me to a trip, like a catharsis to say the least, a tremendous personal crisis because it's a fact, it's a reality thing. So I don't know, I can only answer the question, you know, for myself, but, you know, the world's not on fire for me. And then... Uh, what is my responsibility around that? Because if it's not from fire on me, am I going to just sit comfortably like I've been doing for a long, long time or, or what? I think that's exactly it. Uh, we've just watched people who have really sort of left to look after themselves in the most sort of emotional, heartbreaking ways. Um, they form their own communities. They're helping each other succeed, get through life. And the title is really kind of, it's who is asking that question? Who is it directed at? They've almost in a way done enough. They're trying to do enough. They do enough every single day. Yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to throw in an anecdote, which is not really an anecdote. It's a lot of, it says a lot about, you know, me and, and this process and, you know, the Black Panthers, right? That wasn't, wasn't a walk in the park to gain their trust. It was, uh, I formally contacted them through my email. They call me and they, you know, background check all day, several meetings, two months of meetings where I was also challenged ideologically and still understanding then there's a line, a demarcation line, you know, between, you know, them as nationalists and me as a white guy. Despite all that, perhaps there was a way here of communicating and, and doing something together. But then Crystal Mohammed told me, okay, and I was like, my grandpa's name is Soviet. Marxism is a piece of cake. I understand everything. I did my homework. I read the book, Black Power, all that. Isn't that yet okay? And now welcome to the dark side. I said, hold on. What dark side? <laughs> And that's about the world on fire. Like, what you gonna do? Like, I thought I was gonna. I'm a filmmaker. And then I, I asked the crew members, "Oh, don't you? I don't know if I wanna go to the dark side." And people would say, "Yeah, you know, I get work to do. You know, what if I end up in jail? Like, yeah, and me, like I'm like a kids, you know, small kids." And like, I said no to the band. I said, "Sorry, I can't do it." But I didn't tell the truth. I just told them that. It wasn't working for the film. So I put my filmmaker hat, so I ran away, you know, from the fire immediately. And it took me a good month to realize, and that's why I go back to the emotional reaction to things. I say, okay, my emotional reaction of tremendous fear says something about where I'm at, culturally, ideologically, and all that. And I say, I must go through that. You know, if I don't even share a little bit of dark side, which that's what I did, a little bit of it, then I, I'm utterly unqualified to even start considering the possibility of making a film. So I did it. Did I want to do it? No. I dreaded every single moment that I was with the Panthers. Every time they took the R15 to perhaps protect the people, I say, oh, God, I don't want to be here. You know, I know where I'm from. I know what safety looks like. Safety is my condition. I've been given that. Why do I need to? So I had to keep myself in check a lot. And today I have a relationship, I have a little bit of the dark side in my life. And it's a very strange thing for me to have experienced this. That is not my world. It was not supposed to be and to still be white and powerful. There's a schizophrenia there, a short circuit that I, that I haven't figured out how to fix yet. 
Has it been seen? Is it on release in the States? What's the reaction been? It was released, and obviously a limited release, the main, main cities. Every time we had the premiere at the Lincoln Center, we had it twice, the New York Film Festival and the theatrical release. The Black Panthers, a contingent of the Black Panthers, always came, always shared the stage. <laughs> and they did in London, by the way, at Frames of Representation last April. So you could see the difference. London was a rousing experience. I cried because I was intimidated in a way, like by the experience that it was so empowering. A lot of black activists and I felt scared and inadequate and all that. In America, with Americans, you know, to have five Panthers here speaking the truth, people don't want to mess with that. So nobody really, <laughs> the reaction is very subdued. So in America, there is no, still, there's no room for that kind of open debate and confrontation. Mm -hmm. In London, someone even told the Panthers, I want to know if you're anti-Semitic or not. We need to talk about this. We need to open up. In America, they'd rather avoid it, which is, again, it's part of our idea of keeping, you know, holding on to supremacy, right? You know, you want to engage in a debate because that could open avenues there that, you know, you don't want to get into. Because if you want to engage with them, you want to talk really about what supremacy means. And they talk to audiences like, tell me about your democracy. Let's talk about mm -hmm. democracy in your country. Bring it on. So, yes, it's been released with a very subdued <laughs> reaction. And at that moment, I felt really safe. Like, yeah, bring it on. You want to say something to me? I got the Panthers. The same would scare me. <laughs> that is just a joke, although, although emotionally it was true. I felt pretty safe at the moment with the Black Panthers on my side. Um, I just wanted to ask you about the Mardi Gras Indians. I know you wanted to talk about them a little bit earlier. What they're doing is very much trying to keep hold of much of their ritual and memory making for the community. It's quite a hopeful thread throughout the film. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so um, for those who don't know, the tradition of the Mardi Gras Indians started after slavery was abolished and there's been a bond and a mutual understanding of a condition between American Indians and African Americans, you know, the newly freed African American black people without papers, undocumented. During fire they kind of helped each other. And there's been in, you know, in their mix racial interracial mixing, how do you say that? So a lot of black people carry Indian blood, like Judy carries Cherokee blood and Miss Dorothy, her mom. So the, the celebration of this alliance, allegiance, and paying homage to a tradition uh, is still alive today. Now, black people were not allowed to celebrate Mardi Gras during the day, so they did it at night. There is a special day for the Mardi Gras Indians, which is St. Joseph, Sunday night. You know, keeping memory alive, all of that is absolutely true. But there is something else that is very tangible for me that I had the fortune, the privilege to be, you know, spend a lot of time with the Indians and is the reclaiming a territory, a land, a soil, then no matter how much they pave it and they cover like kind of their history, it's still theirs. And they're reclaiming that, they're claiming the territory back at least once a year with those chanting, with those walks in the neighborhoods. And, and it was a serious matter. I mean, three decades ago, if you stepped in front of an Indian chief, you get killed. I made that mistake while filming. I'm, you get hit, you get hurt. You don't get killed anymore, but, you know, I go ahead with a bullhorn and it was a chief that told me get the hell out of my way because the idea of reclaiming a territory is still very important. And that's why the film, without getting into these details, because this, I hope, first of all, my attempt was not 
to deliver information, what time was to observe and be an intermediary, maybe a facilitator. That's why some people ask me if there's hope. I don't know. All I can say is that the film opens and closes with something that represents legacy, tradition, something that stays alive and also, you know, reclaiming a soil, a territory, a space that is no matter how much they take away from them, will always be theirs. And as long as, as long as that memory stays alive, there's no death in a way. There's no disappearance of a, of a condition, of a race. Of a, so all of that was very important. If there's any hope, it's just there. That resilience that I witness every day, that, that is, yeah, that won't die. Please join me in thanking Roberto Minervini for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Barbican Screen Talk with documentary filmmaker Roberto Minervini. In every episode, we bring you a different example of a filmmaker talking direct to their audience about their craft and inspirations. To support the podcast, you can rate and subscribe via Apple Podcasts, Acast or your usual podcast providers or visit barbican.org.uk. And if you have any thoughts you'd like to share about this podcast or film at the Barbican in general, you can find us on social media at Barbican Centre. Barbican Screen Talks Archive is presented by me, Eleni Jones, and produced by Jane Long for Loftus Media. We'll be back next time to talk about a tale of forbidden love between two Georgian dancers, the soul-stirring 2019 film, And Then We Danced. Until then, be well and goodbye. 50 to 80% less in similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.